Sue, thank you very much indeed. Very good morning to all of you. Thank you for being here, whether you're here in person or online. Now, I want you to imagine that you're driving along the M4, and it's foggy. In fact, it's really foggy. And suddenly, out of the swirling soup of confusion, comes a man running down the central reservation. And he's frantically waving his arms, and he's shouting. I wonder what you'd do. You have some options, it seems to me. Uh, the first thing you could do, you could just ignore him. Uh, it, you know, it, it, he went by so quickly, you might even have imagined it and, and think, did I actually see that at all? So you, you could just ignore him and keep on driving. The second thing you could do is you could slam on your brakes and you could say to yourself, well, I can't see that far ahead, uh, so maybe this person knows something uh, that I don't. Now, I'll come to the third one in a minute. What actually happened when this happened on the M4 a few years ago is very interesting. Uh, There was a pileup, and uh, 10 people were killed, and 25 people were injured, and many people uh, ignored the man who was waving people down, which contributed uh, to the death toll and the injuries. Uh, But a third option is very British, Anyone guess what the, th- the third possibility that people might have done in that circumstance? They beeped their horns at him. It's a very British sort of telling off, isn't it? It's like, you silly man, what are you doing running down the central reservation in the fog? So people beep their, they were sort of cross with the bearer of this news that could have saved their lives. Hoping that everything will be all right, or being annoyed with someone who tells us that everything isn't all right is the way of a fool. Wisdom on that day, on the M4, was to heed the warning and to slow down. Now today we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount, as you may guess, because we've been doing it for quite a long time as a church. I find it mesmerizing and challenging and inspiring. And this final section is not the first time that Jesus, in a sense, stops us, puts his hand on our shoulders, and looks into our eyes to confront us with our own inaction and with our tendency to religious hypocrisy. In a sense, to, to talk well, to present well, but actually not to live well. And this last section that we heard this morning follows on from a list of very binary choices in Matthew chapter 7. The first one is, will we choose the narrow gate that is Jesus, the difficult path, or will we choose the broad gate and the motorway of death? So there's a choice. We need to go one way or we need to go the other. The second one is, who will we listen to? Will we listen to the true teacher or the false teacher? And Jesus says we must look at the fruit of their lives in order to know whether they're true or false. It's not simply the words that they speak, but it's the lives that they lead. The third question, really uncomfortable, is this. Is our Christian profession, is it simply, at the end of the day, meaningless lip service, going through the motions, acting out a part, 
that fools us but doesn't fool God? Or is it authentic obedience where with courage and with dynamism and with vitality we seek to live our lives for Christ? I wonder what decisions you have made or remade as we've listened to Jesus over these last weeks. Now, rather brilliantly, right at the end of the sermon, we have this deceptively simple parable to close the Sermon on the Mount. And it basically takes a really wide lens look at, I guess, life's fundamental question. And that is, how do I do life? What is the foundation on which I build? Uh, What are the things that are going to be utterly true of the kind of person that I want to be? Now, of course, there is infinite variety, as we can tell, just as you, you look around the room now, infinite variety of people. But ultimately, we will fall, Jesus says, into one of two camps, into the camp of the wise or into the camp of the fool. And he tells a story to demonstrate. Two people build a house. Two people experience a dramatic, epic storm and floods. Two people discover that that storm and those floods expose or reveal something fundamentally important about the nature of the house that they built. But it's the differences between them that matters. One is wise, the other is a fool. And this is shown in their choice of where to build the house. One on the sand and one on the rock. And Jesus then applies this parable with razor-sharp precision. You're wise if you hear his words and you put them into practice. Hearing is not enough. It's the living it out that matters. You're a fool if you hear his words and you don't put them into practice. And since you just leave them hanging in the air or adorning your wall, but never finding their way into your heart. Now, it is worth pausing to consider why would anybody choose to build a house on sand? Or uh, to give... the question is full force in its context. Why would anybody here choose to be a fool in the eyes of Jesus? I can think of at least three reasons. The, the first one is ignorance. Somebody might say, I have never built a house before, so how was I to know that building on sand was such a bad idea? Or we could say, this is my first and only life. So how was I to know how important it was, not only to to attend to, to hear the words of Jesus, but actually to do something about them, to to give them a home in my heart. So we could plead ignorance. The second one is we could say it's down to laziness. Building a house is hard work. It's considerably harder work if you have to build on rock even though I know that building on sand carries greater risk. So the, the picture there is a sense of someone who's making a decision. Here's a, part, here's a patch of sand. Here's a rock. I've got to build a house. I need to live somewhere. It's just going to be easier to build right here on the sand. 
Uh, Building a life founded on the words of Jesus carries with it a hundred challenges and sacrifices and, of course, many more joys. And so you could say, well, it's going to be easier as I survey my life. It's going to be less work, less commitment uh, to, uh, to say, well, I'm just going to cross my fingers. I know it's a bit more risky, but I, I just don't want to put in the hard yards. I'm just going to build on the sand. The third possible excuse, so could be ignorance, could be laziness. The third one is that feeling that we are special and that we are different. Normal rules don't apply to me. I can build a house on the sand. For most people, this would be a bad idea. It's fine because I'm me, I'm special. Storms and floods don't happen to me, so I'll be okay. I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, I'm resilient enough to get through anything. I don't need the safety nets that other people do. So three compelling reasons to build on the sand. Ignorance, laziness, that feeling that we are special, that we are set apart. Now, it's hard to argue ignorance when you've had six months of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but, but being lazy or, or thinking that you're better than everyone else, well, we're quite good at that. And uh, we want, though, to avoid the path of the fool. It's important to recognize that what is primarily in view here when Jesus talks about the storm and the flood and the rising waters, what is primarily in view is at the ultimate judgment we face when we meet with God, when we die, or when Jesus comes again. And this has been a common theme in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus talks about the narrow way, the narrow gate, but also the broad way or the broad road that leads where? Leads to destruction. In 7, verse 19, he says, every tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. And then maybe some of the most challenging words that Jesus ever said, talking about the people that only pay lip service to him, he will say to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And now in 727, we have the great crash of the foolish house. This is about death. This is about what happens when ultimately our foundations are exposed. Now, truth be told, and you may be with me on this, um, when, when I sung that song that we sang at the beginning, The Foolish Man, The Wise Man, Built His House Upon the Rock, when I sung that as a kid, the bit that we lived for was the crash at the end. You know, it, it, it was so exciting to us as kids that the house on the sand fell flat and we, everyone did a massive great clap and it, it all felt great. I'm not sure that's what the composer of the song uh, planned uh, or intended. But in this world of sin and rebellion it, into which we are deeply entwined, nothing will matter more than my choice of foundation. I don't want destruction or fire or Jesus saying, I never knew you. I don't want that for me and I don't want that for you either. Now, to some extent, 
the truth of Jesus' closing parable is, is also seen in the personal crises that shake our world and expose our foundations. They're, they're sort of like practices for death. And I've seen it a hundred times, and so have you. The, the unexpected diagnosis, or the, the moral fall, or the loss, loss of a treasured job or status, or the failure to be promoted to the place or the position that I think I deserve. These things can reveal or can expose what is really there beneath the surface when the bravado and the pretty decorations are stripped away. Some of you have been there, and some of you are there today, right now. If that is your experience, this is a gift, and you can use it to your advantage. What did that minor storm reveal about you and your foundations? What, what wobbled when your world wobbled? Or what in you was suddenly exposed as insubstantial or lacking strength or lacking grace or fake or stuffed full of hypocrisy? Did your prayer life just suddenly dissolve? Did your generosity and your giving evaporate? Were you suddenly consumed with hatred and bitterness? That is a gift to you if you have experienced that. It gives you areas to pray into. Your house is up. It's, it's built now. But what you get to do is you get to plan with Jesus for some serious underpinning of parts of the house that are built on wonky foundations. You have to dig out the foolish stuff. You have to back in the concrete mixer of Jesus' word and fill up that space that was fake and void. So, of course, I don't want destruction for me or for you or fire. But what's really important is that Jesus doesn't want destruction or fire for you either. He's like the best hospital consultant. He wants to lay it out for us simply and plainly. Simon, here's what you need to do. This ending to the Sermon on the Mount, it's not, a, it's not a threat from someone that's angry. It's a warning from someone that loves us. And our situation today is way, way better than driving down a foggy M4 and having to make a split-second decision as a random stranger appears out of the darkness and the shadows waving their arms. Maybe they are a fake. Maybe they're making trouble. But it's not the random stranger out of the fog. It's Jesus who is lovingly warning us. He is utterly trustworthy. We can weigh his words. We can read them in the daylight. We are learning that he knows what he's talking about and that he loves us. Now, as I've read and preached through the Sermon on the Mount, I keep coming back to the same place, really. I want to be the one in his grace, in my frailty, I want to be the one who hears the words of Jesus and then begins to put them into practice. It's, it's not primarily about self-preservation, about saving my skin. It's just it's such a great way to live. God's holy 
and courageous and forgiving and generous and wise way to live. So let's end with how on earth we would do this. Two things. We have to, we have to know the words of Jesus. And we have to know them deeply and intimately. As we've read the Sermon on the Mount together, just three chapters in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7, I've kept thinking that there's enough here, even if I paid close attention to it, for a whole lifetime. Think of all the different ways in which Jesus maps out what discipleship looks like. There's a lifetime of work to be done here. We've got to read and reread this stuff. And my pastoral advice would be this, to concentrate on the sections that niggle you and the sections that annoy you. See, I know that we lost some of you week one. Week one, the hurdle was, blessed are the poor in spirit. And some of you, if we are honest, are too proud or too much admired, either here or elsewhere, to even in church admit that the place Jesus wants you to start is to be poor in spirit. Because you think, well, I can name plenty of people who are poor in spirit. Me, I'm gorgeous. So I, 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 can't, I can't even start the conversation uh, with Jesus. Uh, some of you fell a couple of weeks later when we started to talk about anger and lust. And you thought, Jesus is just plain over the top. He's exaggerating. Anger and lust cannot be as harmful as Jesus says they are. You can't conceive of a life with such attention to detail of the seemingly small matters of your heart, your spirit, and your mind. Because you've got used to playing out a wonderful picture of love and discipleship on the big screen. And you can't conceive of attending to that little voice in your own heart that is full of bitterness or full of the desire to put others down or that feasts on lust of other people. And you think, quite honestly, Jesus was exaggerating. He was a preacher. It, it's, it, it can't be as bad or as dangerous as he says. And then you think, well, maybe you think, you know, fasting is about losing weight. Or uh, when Jesus talks about treasure in heaven, that played well with his contemporaries who were poor, but you've got an expensive house and you've got a nice car and you go on nice holidays and it feels pretty much like the treasure you've got today is great. So why would you think about reassessing your life for treasure in heaven when you're sitting on a pile of gold here on earth. Start with the parts that niggle, the parts that annoy you, because that is where your house needs some underpinning. So we need to read and learn and love the words of Jesus. The second is to, is to use a tool that has been there for many, many, many years and is used, I know, by many Christians, including people here. It's often called the examine. And it, all it is is a discipline of reflection and confession. Some people do it at the end of a day. Some people do it at the end of a week or a month or the end of a term or end of a, a season in their life. But it, it's utterly simple. It's Holy Spirit-guided and inspired pray, praying. Where you sit down with a, a pencil 
and a piece of paper. And you just say, Holy Spirit, show me the areas of hardness of heart. Show me the areas of disobedience where I'm railing against you, where I'm ignoring you, when I am just not being your person. Show me them. Help me write them down. Help me name them. And you then use that list as, in a sense, the fuel of confession. Whereas you encounter once again a holy God, you say to God, in all honesty, this is who I am. This is what my heart looks like. But you don't finish there because the last and important part is the imploring of the Spirit to come and change you and to come and make you different and to come and help the words of Jesus come alive in your life. Praying for the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit's gentleness and tenderness and generosity and self-control to bubble up inside you. That is the prayer of examine, the prayer of reflection, the prayer asking for God to transform you. As your pastor, as your pastor, I would ask that you find 15 minutes in your busy lives. I know you can do it. 15 minutes to reread Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. And then to land on one section. There's probably going to be a few, but just land on one section where you know that you need to not just hear Jesus' words, but then to draw them down and to put them into practice. So reread it, five, six, and seven. Find one. Land on that. That's the one that you talk to God about and you say, I want to be the person that puts this into practice. And then pray. And it might be you simply pray on your own. It might be you pray with a friend in your small group. If you want to come and and pray with one of the team, nothing would give us more pleasure than to sit down with you and to say, and if you say, well, look, this is where I'm struggling. This is where my Christian life sucks big time at the moment. But I want to change that. I want to be the person that takes the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. We will pray all day at those kinds of prayers because we believe that God answers them and because we believe that the kind of church that we should be is not just blah, 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 talk about stuff, but is walk, 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 live it out in faith, in courage, together. Amen.